We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. You're listening to The Big Jump with Orla Kelly and Des Doyle. When everyone else is gone Been all along I've seen that clever Take a parachute and go It's gonna have to be some danger Take a parachute and jump You're gonna have to take flight And you are very welcome to The Big Jump this week. Um, I'm Orla Kelly speaking and Des, are you on the line there? Did we extricate you from your garden at last? I am here, Orla, loud and clear. I'm not in the garden. I've no need to be. The rain has happened, so uh, I'm more than happy to join you this afternoon. Is that sufficient rain now for a serious gardener like yourself? Uh, I think we're at 80 mil deficit at the moment. So I think actually given all of the rain we had, I have just heard local reports that there was only, in all that rain, between 5 and 20 mil. So we're still a, a long way off, particularly for wow. things like trees. I didn't realise like gardeners took this so seriously with all the mills and everything. But it, yeah, it is, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, I mean, a lot of this problem with, with very dry soil as well is that um, uh, the rain runs off. It. It's not, it's not going to absorb it as quickly, you know. It's not open. So You can obviously tell from my questioning, Des, that these problems have gone right over my head. The grass <laughs> is still alive. That's my level of gardening. Oh, the lovely peas that I grew thanks to Patrick Hunt, our uh, advisor. The peas are going very well and sunflowers. So, yeah, all good. good. Okay. Um, so this week, um, we are, well, today we are celebrating Community Radio Day. Uh, so thanks to everyone in Community Radio Kilkenny City for giving Des and I the opportunity to do the Big Jump show and look into how we can all make a change to climate action. Um, there are very big talks on <clears throat> government talks this week, which Des and I are going to go through a few of the climate action policies um, that are presented in the programme for government um, at the end of the show. But we are going to have a very interesting conversation with Rod Maloney from BYD. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard of BYD. Um, it's a huge uh, company that started in China makes electric uh, buses, trucks, forklifts, monorails, would have started off making phone batteries. It's an amazing success story of efficiency. And uh, as Europe now moves towards electric transport and electric buses, I think we're going to hear more about the BYD um, scheme. So we have on the line Vice President of Business Development, Rod Maloney. How are you, Rod? Hi, Orla. How are you? I am very good. Thanks a million for joining us today. Listen, the more I've been speaking to you about this, it's a kind of an amazing story because it's a huge corporate company, BYD, that employs nearly a quarter of a million people. But at the same time, it seems to be able to maneuver in a nimble way that only small upstart companies would do. How, how, has that, how have they managed that? Um, yeah, it, that's a really, you know, interesting point. And it's, it's probably reflective of a lot of Chinese companies. Um, so, you know, as you, as how, you did, how would they have started off? Maybe start off with so the it, mobile it started, The company started in 1995. By it was founded by its present um, president and chairman, a man called Wang Chongfu, 
and he decided at um at that time that he was going to get into the battery business because um Korea and Japan really had um a monopoly on batteries or you know they they had the lion's share of the the market for batteries so he set about kind of developing a different way to make batteries so he started with about 20 people and um he's ended up today with a company that has revenues of about 17 billion and as you mentioned earlier on about 250,000 employees mostly based in Shenzhen in the south of China. And Shenzhen you were saying has a population of what? Um it's somewhere uh, between 18 and 20 million in a single city. In a single city. And Shenzhen itself is a really interesting story because um you know back in the 80s when China was struggling uh, economically they they put together a small delegation of officials and they kind of sent them out around the world to go and see how other companies were or other countries were were operating and a few of them around 1978 um rocked up in the the Shannon free trade zone okay and they spent a few days there and they were fascinated by the whole setup of a free trade zone and they went back to China and they decided to model um their own kind of free trade zone uh, try it out trial it in a little fishing village called Shenzhen which was over the border from Hong Kong and from that point in 1980 to now it's grown from about 40,000 people to 18 million people. And it's Amazing. really become and did kind you of live the Silicon there, Valley. What's that? Do you, you, did you live there in Shenzhen? Yeah, I was there for five years. Wow. And I uh, came, back, came back this time last year. Um, it's so it's interesting, though, that the <clears throat> when we would have imagined the Chinese being inward-looking at that time, that they did this very entrepreneurial extra out, outward looking thing of sending teams all around the world to see kind of what other people were doing yeah it, it, it it's also kind of what singapore do you know when singapore wants to get into an industry you know about 10 or 12 years ago they decided that they would allow casinos in singapore and um but before that they was did a good it, research junket for someone was it having to go to yeah, casinos so, all so over before the world. before they did it they went to vegas jersey macau and they kind of figured out they picked the best bits from that so um yeah china china were kind of you know on the ropes at that stage and they needed to figure out um you know their own form of capitalism and essentially Shenzhen is where it started and it's become the Silicon Valley of the East um, and it's it's a very interesting city really modern uh, well laid out clean efficient very efficient public transport systems and it's all electric the, the transport systems there that's it's amazing and and because it's newly built I presume it has it's been able to kind of hop over all the old technologies and it just started off clean new electric yeah i mean um nobody in well i want you know 
very few people. I've never seen a hard line, a landline in China in the five wow. years I was there. Uh, every, you know, everything works from smartphone. Everybody has a smartphone. And yeah. you see, you know, 75-year-old people with their smartphones and they're ordering groceries and ordering a McDonald's online with their phone and everything. So it's, they skipped a whole generation. So that's amazing. So back to, so BYD then, I mean, the, the interesting thing about BYD is it's this huge, efficient, very innovative corporate company now, but still the name Build Your Dreams just sounds more, um, I don't know, dare I say, kind of romantic almost, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, um, and I could never figure it out um, because it's, it's a very laser-focused company on <clears throat> delivering various um, uh, technologies and products um, but China itself is it's kind of a top-down culture so um, you know people respect authority so if the boss says this is what we're doing that's what everybody's kind of focused on so that's why <clears throat> big Chinese companies can pivot very quickly decisions are made frequently and fast and yeah. there, there's not a whole lot of discussion. It's The discussion is more about how we're going to execute rather than, oh, I don't know whether we should do this or that. Yeah, that's a really interesting model, isn't it? So is yeah. that how, so they, so they would have started off then BYD doing the mobile phone batteries. And how did they, what was the next stage of the development? So <clears throat> started batteries, started working with, Nokia and Motorola at the time, who were the two big players, and then started evolving from batteries into making other components for those companies and companies like Nokia and Motorola. And decided the business I work for is BYD Electronics. So <clears throat> we design and make and assemble a lot of consumer electronics for the big names that you would recognize, but our brand doesn't appear on on that brand okay. um, so that that business is about seven billion dollars of the total and then in the early 2000s around 2003 actually mr wong decided that um electric cars were the future so so batteries are at our core and okay. he kind of said he wanted to go off um, and, and look at the whole electric, electrification of cars. And uh, he bought a car company, a small one, and started putting, you know, motors and batteries and things like that. So um, we've ended up on the auto side of the business with a pretty big car business that's primarily focused in China. And then on the export side, um, the bus side of the business. So there, there are it, three it's main... interesting. Yeah, sorry, go on. There, there's, mm. You know, there are a few main components, sorry, in a, an electric vehicle. There's there's the car, there's the motors, there's the battery, and there's there's the CPU, the controller. So yeah. we, we make all of those four things. Um, and it's the same in a bus and as a car, so... And do BYD make those four components just for your own brand cars or do you make them for batteries and those components for other cars as well? So, we, yes, we do make them for um, our competitors. 
we're pretty unique in the sense that we make controllers. We're the only one in China making controllers, and we're the only car company making its own battery in China. Okay. So we do, we and supply, you, you had mentioned others. earlier a very interesting project about uh, the the changeover in ta in taxis in Shenzhen. So there are twenty two thousand taxis, and that they were all changed over to electric vehicles. How yeah. how did that work? So, um, be, because Shenzhen is like a flagship city uh, for China, they're they're an extreme. It's an extremely progressive, outward looking environment and they decided I'm not sure when maybe maybe 2014 2015 that over a period of three or four years that they would uh, switch all their buses and all their taxis over to 100% um, electric and they sat down with BYD and, and kind of said look we need you to design it um, a a taxi for us and, and we'll buy 25,000 over the next four or five years and we need to put in infrastructure charging points all of us so um, we basically worked with the city to do that um, and you know as I said a while ago you know, China is a little different they can make big decisions and just implement them very quickly across the board there's a there's a lot to be said for an autocracy in that regard when you're doing the right <laughs> thing, isn't there? When you're doing the right thing, yes. And yeah. how do how do, <clears throat> are all the charge points then in one area, or are they throughout the city? No, they're they're scattered around the city. For, so for the taxi side of the business, they're dedicated taxi areas. Um, so they would provide charging points. Um, you know, bathroom facilities, cafe facilities, so taxi driver can go and take a break and charge his car, top it up for half an hour, 45 minutes, and then continue on. Um, and all of that was put in at various places around the city. And it was pretty much the same on the bus side of it. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly how many bus depots they have, but they just swapped everything out from from diesel to electric in the space of two or two years. I wonder, was there any um, measurable difference in the air quality after that, or was it an efficiency of saving money as well as pollution? I, I would say it was more about air quality that drove the yeah. decision in the first place, um, and efficiency then came out, you know, efficiency was the second part of the equation, but they were... <laughs> very much into the environment and um, you know that, so that was the driver in the decision yeah and the the strap line for byd is the the official sponsor of mother nature so that's obviously <laughs> where the motivation comes from it's it's very interesting that the buses that are that are in shenzhen now seem to be rolled out being rolled out um uh, across europe sweden have just taken on quite a lot of them um that's going to be the next big market, do you think? Or is it America, both? Um, so we, we have a, a factory in California that's supplying North and South America. I, I would, and I'm not the expert in BYD on it, but um, there's a very big take-up in South America. Um, yeah. In places like Chile uh, for, for electric buses. Um, 
North America is probably a bit slower, but it's, you know, they're getting there. Um, France, Spain, Italy are are pretty big, and the Nordics are, are coming on. Yeah. You have a challenge, you know, when you're looking at um, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, uh, Finland, in, the, in terms of the environment. So a battery isn't as efficient in the cold. Um, okay. So it's, it's probably a bit more challenging there. Okay, this is all fascinating. We are going to take a short break and do come back and join us on the big jump. We're talking to Rod Maloney about all electric buses, cars, batteries, vehicles from BYD. We'll talk to you in a minute. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Take a parachute and jump. You're listening to The Big Jump with Orla Kelly and Des Doyle. When everyone else is gone. And you are very welcome back to The Big Jump. We are having a fascinating discussion with Rod Maloney from BYD. So we were talking about electric buses just before the break there, Rod, and you were saying that the batteries don't work as efficiently in the Scandinavian countries in the cold. How have you overcome that? Um, you know, with with battery technology, it's, it's a very slow-moving uh, development process, but it's getting better and better. Um, and you, I know you were looking at the website recently um, and you were looking at the, the blade technology which is a new technology in batteries that we've developed um, and started manufacturing in, in March which allows for um, a faster charge and the battery will hold the charge longer so it's, it's that kind of technology that's evolving now uh, which, which will you know, help that whole situation. And yeah, and it's it, amazing. Even if you look at the 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 machinery and the robots that you developed to make the blade battery. I mean, if anybody wants to have a look uh, on the website, there's loads of stuff at either stuff on either byd.com or byd.europe.com. Um, how many robots are involved? Uh, I'm, just explain a little bit about the setup for making those batteries. Is extraordinary. Well, because the environment um, is in which you know you're you're handling you're handling chemicals and things like that when you're making a battery, the environment uh, is very very strict. So um, the less in and out and people you have, the better. It's uh, so um, robots are used a lot, and automation is used, and automation in general in China is used more and more and more. So in, throughout the, you know, it's, it's always been, or it's been used for a long time in the auto business. Yeah. Um, but even on our side of the business, on the electronic side, <clears throat> we probably have about 20,000 robots now. Um, and that's increasing all the time. Uh, and does BYD and, make those robots themselves? You no, know, we, we, we don't make the robot, okay. but we but design and assemble all the automation. So we would it's de- only design, a of time, design the yeah. process. Yeah. Well, um, you <coughs> might just say as an aside, because the, the levels of efficiency and innovation that happened. So just as a side story, you might just tell us what happened about providing um, face masks during COVID for the employees of BYD and how that developed. Yeah. So it, it's kind of back to your original question of how a big company can, can kind of maneuver and turn very quickly. So 
back at the end of January when COVID, the whole COVID story was breaking. Um, the CEO of the company decided that we should make our own masks because, you know, we have 250,000 people, so we would need a million plus masks a day. And, you know, that's kind of four or five masks for each person. So um, when they went kind of investigating it, they discovered that there was like a six-week lead time to buy the equipment. So yeah. he, he decided that we would design and, and make our own equipment. So <clears throat> the engineering team were, were pulled in, and in about four or five days, they had a design. And each line has about 1,300 components, and this was in the middle of Chinese New Year, which is like Christmas here. Mm. Um, so they couldn't get their hands on a lot of um, ready-made components. So the, so the factories made 90% uh, of that 1,300 internally, and, and then um, made the equipment. So by, by kind of the end of February, we were making our own masks, and the government found out about it. So they phoned up and said, listen, um, you know, could you, you know, you're making a million masks a day, could you make it five million? And we'll buy the other four. Uh, so <clears throat> by the middle of March, they were making five million a day. Uh, by the middle of April, it was 15 million a day. And I think, you know, just in the last two weeks, we're probably making 60 million masks a day now. Um, seven That's days unbelievable. Week. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So, um, in the, in the space of a couple of short months, um, uh, the company's become the biggest maker of masks in the world. Uh, so that gives you an idea of, you know, when somebody says somebody at the top says, "This is what we're doing, go make it happen," it happens yeah. pretty quickly. This, it's, the it's scale. Good, it's good there's people with good things that they want to do at the top, though, at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so those masks are exported all over the world. They're used all over China. They're donated in many cases. Um, so, yeah, as you say, there, there are people at the top that want to do good things. And do you think you'll continue to make the masks or is it just during this COVID thing, might you have switched to something completely different that you need next year? No, I think, I think we will continue, but probably not at the same rate. Um, I'm sure demand over time will, will soften. Um, yeah. But I, I would think we'll, we'll stay in it now that we have the, the infrastructure that's there. And, yeah. you know, typical of a Chinese company, what, what we will do is, um, you know, once the pressure is off, they will figure out how to make it, you know, more, quicker, better, faster. Um, and that's in the Chinese DNA. How do you, how do you make something better? Um, yeah. And more efficiently, you know. It's, it's brilliant. The, the interesting thing, so apart from the electric cars, the EVs and the hybrids, of which there are a lot of companies innovating in that area, but the, the buses, but also the trucks, the forklifts, and um, the kind of heavier grade vehicles on building sites and stuff. There, there had been an argument that, you know, the diesel trucks are the biggest polluters and there's no alternative there. But you, but you have a, a, a really efficient, totally electric um, truck, articulated truck option by BYD. 
Yeah, and I found that myself quite interesting because um, one of the first things when, when the company started kind of going into commercial vehicles, one of the first things they focused on was kind of light light bands, um, light equipment that's used in airports and things like that. And then an articulated truck. Um, and But more recently, very heavy um construction equipment and trucks you know that are used in the construction business that are on and off road all the time we, we see similar trucks around our roads here all the time but like you i would have thought you know the power needed would would make them inefficient you know the range wouldn't be enough but and they'd be used. big brake horsepower they'd be pulling heavy yeah. loads and yeah but, but you know, electric power has a lot of advantages that way because electric motors are very high torque. So, okay. um, you know, if you're not going 200 kilometers down the road, uh, they're very efficient. Um, you know, for inner city, for if you're for inner city construction jobs, they're very efficient, uh, yeah. both environmentally and noise pollution. And they seem to have a very good, I mean, even the, the forklifts have an 18-hour an running time and a 90-minute recharge. Like, that sounds completely feasible, so there's no disadvantage for a company to change over, apart from the initial investment, and then they save on all the fuel. Yeah, and, you know, when you look at the EV market, where, where we are at the moment, I guess, is that, you know, when you go to buy an electric car... Um, the capital outlay, the, the purchase price of the car at the moment is a bit steep. Yeah. Um, and so therefore the payback period is like, or before you kind of break even is about three and a half or four years. Um, um, but to encourage that here, I think we're going to have to really address the charge points, the, the infrastructure and, and some of the subsidies to get it moving, you know. And the 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 charge points I presume in Shenzhen are just all fast charge points. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And when you know when they build, it's similar. I mean, you were telling me the other day that you know when you build new housing estates now, you must have charge points. So when they yeah. build apart apartment blocks, you know, in the basement where the car parks are, there's charge points for everybody there. And would would somebody, for example, be allowed to drive an older diesel or a petrol car in Shenzhen? Are they banned, or it's just people are all switching to electric? So in in China, all private cars are petrol, um, and in a city like Shenzhen, you don't really see older cars. Um, even though cars are quite expensive, they have a very heavy tax, uh, but they're a status symbol, so people tend to spend on a car yeah um so they're it, it's quite like ireland really you know in the sense that um relatively modern fleet of cars on the road but right. with a lot of electric cars and hybrid and a lot of people i presume using more people using public transport because of, of the density yeah and you know public transport is extremely efficient and clean and safe um, so it's it, it's very well run, and that brings us to so the the um, the public buses which are uh, being rolled out a lot throughout Europe, built by BYD. There's an amazing 
sky a monorail which is basically a, a single electric train on stilts so that it goes above the existing um arteries of transport like the stats are that you it can take 30,000 people an hour and you know it's quiet and clean and the amazing thing about BYD as a company is that they're the single point of responsibility so they build the whole thing they build a structure they keep it they maintain it and yeah. um it just seems like an amazing service it looks like the future of transport it, it is really interesting and it's it again goes back to uh, the chairman who kind of came up with this concept of look we we can't kind of widen the roads and the streets in our cities but we can add another dimension so um, monorail and if you know if you look at the Lewis um, as fabulous as it is uh, it you know it causes some disruption on the ground in its daily use um, but to build that infrastructure was was quite difficult what's what the BYE system is really ba built on is you know you you can if you imagine O'Connell Street or something you put a monorail on top of the in existing infrastructure so there's minimal disruption but the train itself or the carriage itself is a battery so you don't need any of the cabling infrastructure it's charged at both ends right so when it gets to the station it's charged kind of a fast charge and when it gets back to the other station it gets popped up so uh, that that has been quite successful and but it makes infinitely more sense than the disruption that's involved in digging underground which seems kind of obsolete when you look at how efficient this this monorail is straddling the existing infrastructure yeah i mean that that's kind of the argument that we would make but it's much more financially efficient to put it in in the first place to build it and then to run it um, and as you say you know you can you can get a total package so byd does the you know all the surveying all the building all the maintenance um, of the system it's so extraordinary it's, it's, and yeah. it, it seems like the solution to everything and the electric buses so um, i i don't know off the record have byd had any approaches from our national transport agency here or have there been any formal or informal talks anything happening there off the record on the radio um, <laughs> have there been any off the record discussions or I, or, I, or honest, I honestly don't know yeah um, that, that's I know that's not your area yeah the, well um, I suppose what, what I'm suggesting is there should be but anyway because they're a yeah. very exciting new program for government now but how, what, what are the countries who are using the monorail this elevated public transport is that only in Asia um there are a number of cities in Asia using it. Um, believe it or not, there's a city in Morocco uh, has the system. Wow. And there's one going into South America somewhere, I think Chile. Um, so, um, so far, I mean, it's only, it's only about two and a half years old, that whole program. Uh, it, it's. I, I mean, again, every, any, anyone who's listening should go and have a look on the website because it's just... It's pretty amazing looking as well as everything, but 
it doesn't I mean it sounds as though it has a visual impact but when you see it um, it, it's just kind of very lightweight and elegant system yeah absolutely that that is the future and listen Rod Maloney from BYD it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today Rod is the vice president of business development for BYD go and have a look on their website and hopefully that's the way Ireland will look when we have finished this program for government and we update our infrastructure thanks very much for joining us okay thanks Orla and now we'll take an ad break come back and Des and I will be discussing all this news thanks for joining us we are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Take a parachute and jump. You're listening to Orla Kelly and Des Doyle on The Big Jump. When everyone else is gone. You are very welcome back to The Big Jump with me, Des Doyle. And uh, you just heard, for any of you listening before the break, you just heard Orla did a great interview there with uh, Rob Maloney from BYD. Absolutely fascinating uh, uh, business, Orla, how they've just pivoted, how quickly they move, how they've built it, um, and I suppose the opportunities for for electric vehicle use, uh, not just there but around the world. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they, it, it's so complex and so many products what that they do that you can't even go through them all. They also have developed, apart from the Blade, which is that um, multifunctional battery, they have huge um, mega batteries, which are like the back of an Arctic truck, and you use them for storing solar or wind power or powered from a digester until you need it again. So they're just like... The battery technology, I think, is going to be the future of solving so many of the climate action problems that we have. Yeah, and uh, I suppose just on that point, from the uh, energy of electric uh, batteries to the uh, probably now declining government energy and political (laughs) energy, uh, they've had a very long time to have a big, long chat about all the things that they're going to talk about. how to make everything better for us. So I suppose I'll start this discussion by uh, something that I've, I read that was really, really interesting. Um, it was not that surprising for me, but, you know, there's a big there's a big uh, discussion at the moment around, obviously, the participation of the Green Party in, in, in the programme for government and what they want and what they want to get across the line, which is very admirable. But one of the things that jumped out for me this week was... Uh, in the percentage of voters who nominated climate change as their number one priority, in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael voters, the lowest percentage of both, 4% of both parties' voters nominated as their number one priority. Um, so you have this intense debate, uh, I suppose, which has been very much talked about in the media and everything else about what's going to happen and, 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 and how it's going to happen and what things we're going to have to give up and what changes and everything else. But then you have uh, very little appetite for change amongst the, probably two two of the three biggest parties. It's just quite it's, it's quite amazing, really, isn't it? It is, but I think the appetite for change, I think during the election that the housing and health that people were talking about, and I think what what is going to happen about everyone's climate action policy, every single party, is that... It's going to have to happen because, I mean, Garrett said last week we either pay 2 to 5% of GDP now or we pay 30% of GDP 
you know, in the future. And there's also going to be massive European fines and everything. So whether it's carrot or stick and whether you're doing it now for the good or the good of the planet and of people and the betterment of society or whether you're doing it because you have to do it. But, I mean, even Rod, like, as you know, every single one of our guests have said, if you make the right choice for the environment and for climate action, you end up saving money, you know, as well as saving the environment. So I think people might not have put it as number one, but that doesn't mean that the political parties, that they still have to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think they I think they have to get on, uh, you know, rally around the flag, though, because uh, adoption of green politics is the only thing that's going to get them in government. And I think for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, both of them um, very much at loggerheads with each other over the last, you know, number of decades, they're both competing to stay in power in some some sense. And even if that means rallying around the flag to, to uh, green issues, which... You know, to to be honest, they haven't really been that uh, concerned about in the last number of years. I think it's it's, it's kind of interesting because there's going to be huge changes, like the, what they what they've committed to. And of course, none of these things are agreed uh, by the parties yet. They're not they're not mandates just gone out. Um, but I think uh, for those two parties in particular, they're going to have to be committing to seven percent annum reduction of greenhouse gas. Uh, 51% reductions over the decade, net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, all those things are going to take a uh, huge investment. They're going to take huge change. They're going to take, you know, a huge change and a huge shift politically, particularly around agriculture. I mean, I, I, I can still see from, you know, reading uh, and watching the election, I suppose, very closely, as I'm sure you would have as well. Um, all of the conversations around agriculture have been, they've skirted around the issues. You know, the issue is that the national herd, bar they come up with some technological innovation in the next couple of weeks, uh, is going to have to be reduced. And that's a very unpalatable message. Well, I think there's a more complex view needs to be looked at around the way farming, so that the, the agricultural policy they've said is that it has to be higher quality produce, that there has to be more people involved of the farming group involved in actually, you know, getting the majority of the money for, for that. So the way the farming in done, is done in Ireland and the huge subsidies are not sustainable Definitely, but there hasn't been, I think, enough looking into the whole anaerobic digesters and the green ammonia and the way the fertilizer is actually used. And there are a lot of things, a lot of innovation needs to be thought around that. But at the same time, there have been, you know, direct thing, direct, you know, um, statistics made about like 27, 20% of the capital transport budget now has to go towards cycle lanes and walking, which is 360 million for bus and bike, and that the public transport ratio has to be two to one for public transport and the one being the roads. So these are all changes that certainly, if you listen to the efficiency that Rod was talking about, the infrastructure for the electric cars, I mean, we're going to have to, we're just going to have to really rethink that yeah, it's 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 interesting. I suppose there's two things that you know, just from what you've said there. One of them is is that is is, and I've read the piece on the higher quality um, um, food, you know, which is obviously really really good for animal welfare and it's better for environment and everything else. But that's against a context of a consumer 
who uh, you know who now is faced with you know a, a higher unemployment, a more difficult uh, um, you know economic uh, situation probably, um, possibly recession, and a context of where they become used to cheap food. Okay, there's been a race to the bottom in terms of quality and price with a lot of for, for most consumers um, because that, that's driven down. We're probably probably one of the the economies that spends the least on quality food. I think I remember reading that. But the other piece as well, I think, is that the government now, both both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have what have have obviously want to go back into power okay there's a deep-seated desire to be in power there at whatever the cost but the cost actually is 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 the rod that's going to break their back i think because had Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil you know and they were both kind of in, in a way codependent on each other in the last number of years had they given the green agenda a little bit more thought or had they been a little bit more you know, specific about what they were going to do or even started some of those measures, they actually could have introduced those measures at a time economically when it was very good, when people would have understood them better and that people would maybe have a little bit been more amenable to taking them on. And that would have given them context now to say, look, these things have worked, they've created employment, they've created green tourism, they've created all these great things and our carbon, you know, emissions are, are, are coming down. But now they're in this situation where they have to adopt these things which are quite alien to both those parties they don't feature they didn't feature very much in the manifestos uh in either uh especially in Fine Gael. and now they're going to have to adopt these kind of nearly with a gun to their head uh with the green party saying look we're only going to go into government if you do x y and z and that's going to be a much harder thing to, to kind of get across to the electorate, particularly now as there's a kind of an, I suppose, an environmental or an economic stressor. Uh, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen as a result of Corona. So it's, I think it's a missed opportunity, really, for, for Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil that they could have been doing work on this, particularly around agriculture in the last number of years, which would probably have maybe captured them voters that would maybe have gone to Fianna, or to uh, the Green Party. I think. The interesting thing is, yeah, I think there should have been a bit more done by all the parties because I think climate action is only going to work if every single political party buys into it. And whether you do that by a carrot or a stick, it doesn't matter. Every single political party has to have climate action really high up on their agenda for things to work and for also there not to be a huge cost in the future or huge fines for us not meeting our, our Paris climate targets. But the thing is that the, the, the change and the change in behaviour that people are going to make, I don't think is going to be any more palatable now or three years ago or in three years' time. So there is going to have to be, as we say in this show, a big jump towards this. Do you know what I mean? And I think like a huge amount of that is, is education as well. Like I was on the BBC Food Calculator this week, which is a really good, simple way. And it says, OK, if you eat beef once a week, it's 640 kilograms per annum of CO2, which is the equivalent of a return flight to Malaga. And then it just goes through all the other things. And if, if you change that, let's say, for example, to beans in your spaghetti bolognese instead of mince, you're suddenly down to seven kilograms per annum. So it's a really good calculator. I think that people, like even for me, I'm going, okay, well, I can easily make a spaghetti bolognese with beans instead of beef. Like, I think there needs to be a huge amount of education for 
people who are buying cheap food. But the thing is that food that is very expensive, it's the same as fashion. Food and fashion that are really expensive for the planet to produce cannot be really cheap to buy. And a lot of the policy within Europe and within Ireland has to be connecting the production of food and fashion and and single-use plastics to the actual price of them so that something is that costs a huge amount to the planet has to cost a lot of money and then people go for you know a cheaper better option like a cheaper a better option which happens to cost less you know yeah like I, I just don't, i just don't think it's in the public psyche for them to that they've been trained to 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 uh to expect that the world provides them with endless resources and i suppose that's one of the key parts of this of this um you know, program uh, that that our intention is that there are are people out there with an aspiration around living more sustainably, uh, and admittedly, most of them are, are are in the probably the middle socioeconomic bracket. Okay, they have the luxury of thinking about that, so it's a very much a middle class thing. Um, but the, the the actual change that's going to be required is it's a huge scale of action. Okay, it's going to be like turning a tanker around. You know, and I read a great paper. Um, Professor Peter Thorne in Minute University during the week, who's on the UN panel for climate change. It, okay, it's a mass, he, he said it's a massive step in ambition, okay, in ter- terms of climate action and biodiversity, um, but not to expect things quickly, you know. So that, that, that makes me nervous um, thinking about this and talking about this because in politics, particularly in Ireland, we're very short term. Um, you know, if, if in two years' time we're all bearing the pain for, you know, all these things, the costs of more, you know, carbon credits and all those things, we're all be- and we're not seeing some, you know, advantages. So we always focus as humans on what we're going to lose in change as it regards to the outcome, okay? And, and I think it's going to be very hard for the government whatever way they do it, to frame it. Um, but, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's an, a, massive, uh, a massive amount of things to be, to, be, uh, to be changed there, you know. There's just, um, like... You know, I agree the, with you, but I think yeah. that's why if every single party, in no matter what country, commits to what, co- what really have to be, like, very stringent uh, climate action changes across mm. the board in an integrated way, then it means that you don't get the, we're going to kick out this government and bring in another one that doesn't care about the environment. That's why it really has to be every single party buying into it so you don't get that ping-pong back and forth of, you know, like you've seen in the States about Obama introducing all these measures and then mm-hmm. Trump taking them away. That's why I think it's imperative that the opposition parties, both now and in the future, whoever is not in government, has to you know, say this is exactly what we're doing about about climate action so that there isn't a kind of, uh, oh, we, 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 we'll make it nice and cushy for you and we'll just ignore the environment, mm. you know? I, I, I think I think there's still a reluctance. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of, 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 of writing about it at the moment around agriculture, you know, and it's one of the big, 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 big generators of, 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 of some of the issues around climate. And I don't want to vilify the sector, but it is one of the things that has to be talked about. But because of the long-term relationship between politicians and farmers and particularly around the beef sector and the kind of nearly awful dependency there is on on subsidies it's just 
always focused on getting you know cheaper food at the cost of everybody and we all have to pay the cost for that you know the environment pays the cost for it we all pay the cost for it in water quality and environmental air quality and stuff like that but the the other interesting thing that i read during the week which was really you know and i knew we we're going to have this conversation it, uh, for covid19 when we talk about this shock of that to our country and and you know what it would what it would do and how how much it's closed the country down in terms of travel in terms of all those things since March the um, the reduction on that is shockingly uh, in terms of uh, emissions is only four to five percent mm. but know, a lot of that will be sustained because the whole way that people are going to work I think is going to change with people working from home and uh, we're going to I mean there is a commitment in the program to government from all three parties saying that all the new buses will be electric that the mm. infrastructure will be rolled out so you have to look at a lot of that. And then there is going to be the carbon tax, which is going to affect people's behavior as regards flights and what they consume and the passiveness. There is going to be a big change. I don't personally think that anybody really wants that because no one, even though there are huge gains, no one particularly likes change. But, you know, it's going to happen. It's coming down the rails, I think. Yeah, I suppose uh, the question as well is, you know, who will it affect most? You know, people on higher incomes will be probably less affected. People who are uh, not just in Ireland, around the world, uh, as as countries start to adopt this, um, they will have, uh, you know, bigger challenges in terms of accessing food and cheaper food, which is, is unfortunately the, uh, the, the, the basis for a lot of people how they can live, you know, how they can feed their kids and stuff like that. They're dependent on cheap food. They're dependent on welfare, uh, and that's very, very, uh, it's a very difficult thing. But look, I mean, there's there's lots of good things. I don't want to sound uh, negative. But there's lots of good things in this, and if they come true, even if half of them came true, I think it would be very, very good. So uh, yeah, I think uh, overall um, there's a lot of reading. Uh, I can see why the government took so long to uh, come to a decision, and hopefully we'll get it across the. The, uh, the line. We will know this time next week, hopefully, possibly. Absolutely. And um, on that note, I am just going to say once again, as you did, that today is uh, National Community Radio Day. So uh, thank you very much to uh, the radio station for giving us the opportunity to do this show. Morris is up next, and he's also going to talk about community radio. Our guest today, which was a really interesting interview, was uh, Rob Maloney from BYD. Um, you've been listening to The Big Jump with me, Des Doyle and Orla Kelly, and no doubt next week we will have more interesting things to help you make good decisions around sustainability. Have a great weekend. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. 